May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. There's an alarming trend that's happening in America, at least alarming for Christians to observe this, and that is that many people who once professed faith in Christ are no longer doing so. They're leaving the church and they're renouncing faith in Jesus. And this is happening especially among younger people today. There's a trend on social media of especially celebrities, high-profile younger people who were once raised in the church. And then they, uh, for whatever reason, and these reasons are complex, but they say, no, I no longer call myself a Christian. And they will tell their deconversion story on social media. And then that influences other young people. And that's happening at such a rate. It's been happening for some time now. But uh, it's happening at such a rate, according to one report I read, and we know statistics can be kind of ambiguous and difficult to wrap our hands around exactly, but according to this one report, something like one million people a year are deconverting, leaving Christianity. And at that rate, by the year 2050, again, this has been happening for several years, 30 to 40 million, if this trend continues, 30 to 40 million people who now profess faith in Christ will no longer do so. And, and so this is a, a great concern. And these are not just statistics, but many of us have friends, family members that we care about, that we're concerned about who have fallen away from the church um, or were worried that that's the direction they're going in. And, and the writer of Hebrews was worried about this too, about deconversion. The writer of Hebrews was a pastor, it seems, of, of a community, of a Jewish Christian community that was under pressure from the culture uh, they were subject to persecution because of their faith in Christ. And, and under that pressure, there was a temptation to leave Christ and go back into Judaism. And so throughout this letter, which really is a sermon, most scholars believe that this is a sermon. Long sermon, by the way, 13 chapters. That throughout this, he's warning them not to do this, not to fall away. And today we read one of these warning passages. And it, and it starts by saying, uh, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That could be translated, see to it that no one falls away from the grace of God. Or another image might be, loses their grip on the grace of God. So that's what's at stake here. To fall away from Christ, this pastor is saying, is to fall away from the grace of God. And the grace of God is the goodness of God. Right? It's the undeserved, unmerited goodness of God communicated to us through Jesus Christ. The grace of God is the truth of God. The love of God. The salvation of God. The eternal life, that he, all that is 
wrapped up in this grace of God. And so for those of us who have experienced this grace of God, the things that we've just sung about earlier, the river of life, we've experienced this. We don't want to see others let it go, fall short. We don't want ourselves to lose our grip on this good gift that God has given us, His grace. So how does it happen? How does it happen that people fall short of the grace of God? Why do they walk away? Well, at the beginning of this passage, he talks about this. The, the, the reasons why some people will walk away from the faith or are tempted to walk away from the faith. And these are kind of warning signs because what he's really warning against is apostasy. That's the technical term here. Apostasy is a willful and deliberate renunciation of Christ. I am no longer a follower of Christ. That's apostasy. But there are steps along the road to apostasy. And he's warning about these steps, this kind of slip, slippery slope. And one thing is that can draw us away from Christ is, of course, idolatry. Idolatry. Idols in our hearts. And he says, and this is kind of hard to discern on first reading, but you do a little digging and you understand what he's talking about. He says at verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, what's he talking about there? This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 29. And in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses is saying to the people of Israel, uh, be careful that um, a man or a woman in this covenant community does not go after other gods, the gods of other nations in their heart. Like they might make a profession that they're part of this covenant, but the temptation is that they become drawn away by the idols of other nations, and he says, and they become a bitter or poisonous root. In other words, they think that they're okay spiritually, but they've gone after other gods. Their heart has chased after other gods, the gods of other nations, idols. And that is spiritually damaging to them, a poisonous root, and that can spread to others in the community. And so the, the writer is alluding to that. Now, he's writing to Hebrews. They would have, these Jewish Christians would have picked this, this up. The bitter root is a person who is harboring idolatry in their heart. And that can happen in our lives, too. It's a constant temptation for us to go after the gods of this world. It can happen through money and material possessions where we begin to put our identity and our hope in money and material possessions and spiritual things began to recede. It can happen in worshiping, you might say, the, the God of, of comfort and ease, wanting to just have a comfortable life and a good time. And the things of God began to get lower and lower on the priority list. It can happen by going after alternative spiritualities and alternative religions and turning 
away from Christ. And if we're not careful, when that happens, if we don't repent of these idols, if we don't ask the Holy Spirit to help us identify those idols in our life, can lead us away eventually from Christ. And then that can influence other people in the community. So idolatry is one of these things, one of these warning signs. And so we need to watch out for idols. And then at verse 16, he says this, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Remember the story of Esau? Esau the hunter. He was out hunting and he got hungry and Jacob was home making stew, making lentil soup. And Esau the hunter comes back and he says, I'm starving. Give me some of that stuff, Jacob. And uh, Jacob the schemer says, okay, I'll give this to you if you sell me your birthright. See, he was the firstborn. They were twins, but he was in the status of the firstborn who was set to inherit the property or the majority of the property from Isaac, his father. And uh, Esau says, what good is my birthright when I'm starving now? I want it now. He wanted to satisfy his immediate cravings. And he didn't care about the future blessing. And so Esau represents somebody who puts temporary satisfaction over things of lasting value. The temporary over the eternal. The sensual over the spiritual. And the writer here says that Esau was an unholy person. He was a profane man. He was not concerned with the things of God. He was not concerned to pursue a life that's pleasing to God. Just before this, the author has said, strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Don't be like Esau, who was profane. So this is a decision we must all make. This is a decision that we all have to face. Will I live for momentary pleasure? Or will I live for God? Will I... Uh, Seek things that really matter, eternal things. Am I going to be godly and strive by the grace of God to live a life that's pleasing to Him or profane? I read um, this week a columnist who confessed that as a young man, he said that he pursued a life of sensual pleasure. Sensual pleasure as a young man. And he said, it kept me from surrendering my life to Christ because I had been told in this American culture that it is my right to pursue, especially at this stage of my life as a young man, to pursue commitment-free pleasure in the sexual realm. And so he said, that's what I was doing. But after one night, after a one-night tryst, he was woke up burdened with guilt and shame. And he realized this is a lie. You can't just do this and not feel anything. Felt guilt and shame. And he said, I realized what I was looking for really more than this experience was committed love, more than temporary pleasure. And he said, I got to the point where I realized I wanted Christ more than my desires. I wanted Christ more than my desires. And that was the turning point. Can you say that today? I want Christ and His truth more 
than my desires. And when we find Christ, the pearl of great price, the great treasure, then our desire is to know Him more. It puts everything in priority, everything in order, everything in perspective. But this man was like Esau at a time. And I think many of us can relate to that. We can relate to that temptation, to that struggle, to that battle. But by the grace of God, we can desire Christ more than our desires. But these are some reasons why people fall away from Christ. They give themselves over to the idols of this age. They give themselves over to a life of pleasure-seeking rather than seeking the things of God. It's a battle. And some people don't strive for holiness. Well, why should we be concerned about this anyway? And why should we personally be motivated to hang on to the grace of God and to help others do the same? Why does it matter? Well, in the next section, he gives the reasons why. He gives a positive reason and he gives a negative reason. He gives a, you should want this and you should not want this in this next section. And the positive side is this. He says, Think about the relationship that God offers you and that you have experienced in Jesus Christ. Think of what God gives you in the new covenant through Christ. And he compares the new covenant to the old covenant. And he says in the old covenant, people were often, when they encountered God, they were terrified of God. And he talks about what happened on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. And he, he paints this picture of an awesome and terrifying encounter with the living God. Blazing fire, um, darkness, gloom, a tempest, a windstorm, a trumpet. People hearing God's voice and saying, stop, I can't take it anymore. And even at one point, Moses, the man of God, Moses, who is the mediator between God and Israel, Moses, who had an intimate relationship with God, Moses himself was terrified of God. This is what it was like to encounter a holy, righteous, living God in the Old Covenant. But that's not what it's like to encounter God through Christ, he says. That's not what our relationship with God is like in the new covenant. You've not come to Mount Zion. You've, or you've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. The heavenly city. The new Jerusalem. And you've come to a place of countless angels who are ready to party. <laughs> and are partying. They are in festal garments. And that word was used in the Greek for festival occasions, banquets and feasts. And parties and celebrating the Olympic Games. He says that's the kind of relationship and community that God is drawing you into through Jesus Christ. It's a wedding reception where everyone is laughing and dancing and no one in the family is fighting. Everybody is getting along. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Sometimes I'll have to tell you about my wedding story. <laughs> wasn't quite like that. It's celebratory. It's the joy of Bush Stadium when Albert Pujols hits a grand slam like he did a few days ago. Sorry, Davises. 
It's Christmas morning. It's Christmas morning with the kids and with the grandkids. It's not doom and gloom that God is inviting you into. It is joy. It is revelry. It is happiness. It is finding in the eternal God what your heart has been longing for all along. It's a foretaste of the joy and beauty of heaven. And what he's saying is, if you've come to that, if you've tasted that, why do you want to now walk away from that? And you've come to Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember what happened to Abel and Cain. Cain killed Abel. And Cain was guilty of murder. And as a result of killing his brother, he was part of the punishment was to be an accursed wanderer for the rest of his life. The blood of Abel speaks of guilt. It speaks of justice. It speaks of the consequence of sin, which is to be a wanderer. But the blood of Jesus says, you're forgiven. I've paid the price. I've taken the just punishment. You are not a wanderer. You've been reconciled to the living God. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Forgiven, pardoned, freed, loved by God. And this pastor is saying, why would you want away, it will fall away from him? Who shed his blood for you and has given you this. The joy and the fellowship with God and his people. So that's the positive side of this message. But then comes the negative. Then comes the warning. Here comes another warning. And this warning is about the coming judgment of God. He says it happened in the Old Testament where people refused to listen to God. And judgment came. And it will happen again. A day of reckoning. The day of reckoning. The world is headed for a cataclysmic event. The world is headed for a day of reckoning, the Bible says. And we often get, it's so easy to get complacent about this and not to really believe it. Because everything goes on just like it has always gone on. Except the last couple of years it hasn't. And then there are wars and plagues and famines and disasters. And we think, wait a second. It doesn't just go on like it always goes on. And God can speak to us in these things. And God is active in these things. They're wake-up calls. And... There is a day the scripture teaches and Jesus teaches that's coming. A day of reckoning. A day when God is going to shake all things, heaven and earth, and he's going to remove the things of this world that are temporary. The world and its desires are passing away. But the one who does the will of God endures forever, lives forever, John says. Things are going to shake. There's a day when he's going to shake heaven and earth to make way for his kingdom, which is unshakable. The day of reckoning is going to be like an earthquake. It's going to be like a forest fire for our God is a consuming fire. It will come with ferocity and swiftness. It will catch many people unaware 
And nobody is going to escape it, this day of judgment. The only way to stand in the judgment is to stand with Christ. To be united to him. The one whose blood speaks a better word for you. His blood covers you from the judgment of God. What are we to make of a preacher who preaches like this? Who talks about fire and judgment? What are we to make of somebody who talks this way? Is this guy like the people that go outside the community college where my son goes? There's a church that goes there occasionally. They hold up signs and they say you're going to hell. They don't know these people. They've never talked to these college students, but there they are. Shouting with their signs. You're going to hell if you don't repent. They don't have any relationship with these students. They've not expressed any love. They've not expressed any care. They've just shouted this message of judgments coming. Don't think that's very effective today. It's a turn off. It hardens. It can harden hearts. But that's not our pastor here. Our pastor is warning out of love. I mean, throughout this letter, throughout this sermon, he has given lines and lines of encouragement. He has even said in Hebrews 6, which is a chapter about apostasy, warning about apostasy, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things for you, things that pertain to salvation. And so this warning is not drawing back from grace. This warning to not fall from grace is itself an act of grace. (laughs) Because God issues warnings to his children who are going astray to get them back on track. That's what's going on here. I agree with what Zach Eswine says. Even God's threatening is an act of grace. Even God's threatening is an act of grace. He is justified to judge us. He's not obligated to warn us. He does it out of grace. Jesus in our gospel reading issues a warning too, doesn't he? He says that to be without God in eternity is to be in a place of regret and anger, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But this warning is coming from Christ who demonstrated his love For you and me at the cross. So this is why we ought to be concerned about people who are falling away. This is why we need to watch ourselves. To fall away from this grace, to lose our grip on this grace, is to invite the judgment of God. God takes our life seriously. He takes our response to Him seriously. We should take Him seriously. To fall away from Him is to invite His judgment and reject the joy and celebration he wants to give. So that's the positive and the negative side of this warning. How should we respond? Let's look very quickly, briefly, to what he says about how we should respond to this. Because he uses a phrase here two times. See to it. See to it. Pay attention to this. Episcopos. That's where we get our word Episcopalian from. Scope it out. Oversee it. Be on the lookout for this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the 
the grace of God. And what he's saying there is you need to look out for one another. If you see somebody in the congregation, in the community, who seems to be kind of going on down the wrong path, you, you need to be concerned about that person. See to it that no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God. This is why I love it when I hear people in the congregation, you know, have called somebody they haven't seen in a while in church. And are you doing okay? They're looking after them. Is everything going all right in your life? They love to hear that as a, as a pastor. I have primary oversight. This is a major responsibility for me. But we're in this kind of together. And, and, and the writer is saying, let's not leave anybody behind here. Let's all watch out for one another. And this presupposes that we're in a community where we know one each other and we can look out for one another. And, and it also, I think, presupposes a community where we're honest with one another and we can talk to one another about our struggles and about our questions and about our doubts. And we can get to know each other and help each other out so we can all together obtain the grace of God and hang on to it to the very end. And then he says at verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. See to it that you. So be aware of others and, and, and take care of others, but also take care of your own soul. Where are you with this? See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Are there places in my life where I'm giving myself over to idolatry? Are there places in my life where God is not really at the top, but there are other things? that are replacing the pursuit of God in my life. See to it that you don't refuse. Don't close your ear to the word of God. It's a word of grace. Hang on to this grace. Esau, it says, was not able to find repentance. It was too late in his case. And I think that refers to he wasn't able, I mean, once the decision was made to give the birthright, he wasn't able to change the mind of his father. I think that's what that means. It's a passage that's kind of difficult to interpret. But it was too late in Esau's case. It's not too late for any of us here to hear and heed the word of God. The door of mercy is always open to those who are repentant. If you find yourself today moving away from God, the door is open. Hear this word. Understand what Christ has done for you at the cross, the word he spoke for you, the word of forgiveness, freedom, and love. Remember, friends, what's in store for us. The celebration, the joy, the festal gathering with innumerable angels. Don't lose sight of that hope. Look to Jesus. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and for these ancient words written by a pastor so long ago, concerned for a congregation of those who were tempted to turn from Christ. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that these truths would be planted deep in our hearts and that we would hear the warning and heed it, that we would care for our own souls and, the care, and we would care for others that we're close to. Help us to be a community that looks after each other and grows together in pursuing the grace of God. I pray it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?